Well, it is good to be with everybody here, whatever room or screen or campus or location or whatever device you're at. We are so excited to have you here as we close out a set of conversations we've been having around the last words of Jesus. We've called it Famous Last Words. And today is a fitting end to these conversations because we're looking at the last of the last words that Jesus made on the cross where he says it is finished. And as we'll see today, that is a bolder statement than we might actually think, which is saying something because saying anything is completed is a pretty bold statement to make already these days. I mean, take, for instance, even just the fact that you have to start stuff takes some energy, takes a plan, takes kind of pushing through and saying you're going to get up and get ready to do it. But actually finishing something, actually checking it off the list can require quite a bit of focus and determination. And, and we know this. I mean, you guys all know this, that it is easier to start a half marathon than to finish a half marathon. Uh, it is easier to start cleaning your garage or to start cleaning your office or to have your kids start cleaning their room and every parent nods in sad agreement at the same time than for them to actually finish it. Uh, it's easier to buy a book and even start like a page or two of that book than actually finish it. In fact, uh, I, I like a lot of people these days, I have a, a bookshelf in my Zoom background, uh, partly because I want everyone to be like, oh, that guy's smart. <laughs> Look at the, I mean, he's, he's pretty smart. Look at all those books. But I actually calculated it out uh, of how many of those books I've actually read from cover to cover. And I am batting a solid 14%. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. You don't, if you do that same activity yourself, you may be a little surprised as well. What complicates uh, completion is also that we have different standards on what finished really means. Um, I, I am a uh, what you would call a big picture kind of person, which means I am a big picture kind of cleaner. And so when I walk into a room, uh, I, I, I want to clean it to the level where if someone else walks into the room, they're kind of like, yeah, it looks like everything's in order, like things are kind of put in their space, you know, everything, you know, looks okay. Don't turn on the lights, don't put a manu, you know, microscope next to it or anything, but, you know, does it feel clean? Uh, my wife jokes with me that I am an 80% cleaner. And what that means is that 80% seems to be the threshold that if I get the room kind of somewhat over that threshold, then I just kind of check that thing off. Um, but she cares about the 20%. She is a 100% cleaner. So when I uh, clean a room and I say it is finished, but, you know, there's some dishes in the sink or some crumbs on the countertop, uh, or a half, you know, drunk cup of coffee that's kind of hanging around the side there. Like those are like flashing lights to her where she just can't, I mean, she just can't check those off. It's like for her, uh, it's not finished. Done for me is not done for her. I, I say all this to say that when we hear the words of Jesus today where he says it is finished, um, we can have different ideas of what he means by that too. You know, uh, some of us could say, hey, is he referring to the fact that, you know, his life is over? Is he referring to the fact that his time of suffering is done or maybe his time of teaching uh, ministry on earth is over? 
since it's connected to his death, since it's said on the cross, I think most of us would say, hey, his death has a part of that completion. And some of us may jump in and say, well, I know the answer to that, that, you know, what he finished is he died for our sins. And yet that raises a lot of questions as well, because, well, why did he need to die for our sins in order to complete what he set out to do? In fact, there's a growing number of people uh, who are pretty disturbed by the cross, where they feel like, man, that's actually, that feels like kind of a cruel act by God to have his son come and, and, and die on the cross, and that that's the mission that he was set out to do. Uh, some people have asked a really good question where they say, well, you know, why can't God just simply wave his hand and forgive everybody? Because he asks you and I to simply forgive, like, why can't God do that himself? That's a really good question. And if you want an answer to that, you can email Jeff Jones at chaseoaks. No, we'll, we'll talk about it today, I promise. Understanding what Jesus completed at the cross is really, really important. In fact, I would argue that it affects everything about your experience at church, everything about your experience with God, uh, everything about the, the level of peace versus angst that we experience in our life. This is big stuff. You know, at Chase Oaks, we talk about how we don't sweat the small stuff, but today what we're talking about is big. And it's not just big because I say it's big. It's big because it's what Jesus said was big. That despite the great importance of his teaching, his example, his works of compassion and power, Jesus made it clear that he had a central focus in his life, a central mission that he was here to complete. And he says this throughout his ministry, but one of the places where he makes it abundantly clear is in Matthew 20, where he says in verse 18, listen. He's like, just listen to me. I'm going to lay it out as plainly as I possibly can. He said, listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the son of man, that's often how he talked about himself. The son of man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Jesus is saying, I'm just going to lay it out as plainly as I can. That This is what I am here to do. This is what I am on a mission to do. Now, as is often the case in Scripture, the disciples don't quite get it. They kind of actually gloss right over this when they hear him talking about this. They say, hey, hey, Jesus, that's... That's great. I mean, that sounds pretty bad, but I mean, that's great. But we can we ask you a favor? And right after that, when they ask him the favor, they say, hey, when you you know, when the kingdom of God comes in all of its fullness, can we have like the choicest seats in the room? Can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? And Jesus responds this way. He says, Jesus answered them. You don't even know what you're asking. He said, you have missed the point. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering? I am about to drink. He's like, you're not even. You're not even understanding if you're asking and jockeying for positions in the kingdom. I'm here to do something that only I can do. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, in his ministry, Jesus is laser focused on what he's here to do. In fact, he said that this was uh, in the slide even before this. He said this was the reason he came. Like, this is his whole point of being here, was that he came to give his life away, willingly, lovingly, purposefully, as a, in his words, a ransom 
for many. Now, he uses an interesting uh, phrase in here uh, where he talks about this bitter cup of suffering that he must take on in order to complete his mission. Uh, This isn't the only time he talked about it. Uh, When he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he's about to be arrested, right about before he's about to be executed on the cross, he is in anguish, the Bible says. He's sweating to the point of tears and even to the point of blood. And this is what he, he mentions again, the cup. He says, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. This cup is an interesting image. And even when he described it as a bitter cup, that's a pretty intense thing that pops to our head. At least it is uh, for me. Uh, a couple of years ago, I started having pain in my lower back. And so I went into an urgent care and they ran a few tests and the tests came back indicative of kidney stones. Now, when I, I, I'd never had those before, uh, but I started to find out that a lot of people have because I would go up and, and people would ask me like, hey, you know, they'd known that I wasn't feeling great and say, hey, what was it? And I said, well, they think it's kidney stones. And I had so many people that reacted like, oh, I've had those worst pain I've ever experienced, like childbirth for men. By the way, uh, That is not the most comforting words when you hear a diagnosis like that. So just in the future, maybe as you talk to someone, it's like "Eh, that that may not be the first, you know, thing to put out there like childbirth for men. Not a pleasant idea. But one of my relatives, uh, my wonderful stepmother in law, her name is Franny. She's a fiery redhead, just wonderful person. Uh, She she didn't react that way with just kind of those words or like, well, tough luck for you. She said, Eric, we've got this. She's like, for the last hour, I've been researching home remedies on Google, on things that you can do for it. And I found out that if you drink something, and I brought some of this with me, if you drink some of this, this is apple cider vinegar. She said, if you drink some of this, it will dissolve the kidneys in your body. She's like, do you want to give it a try? And I said, well, um, in the face of childbirth for men, I will try anything. So she said, well, here's the deal. You have to pour six to eight ounces of it, and then we got to just drink it back. And I was like, okay, like, all right, like, I'm game. Let's try it. I don't know if you've had any experience with apple cider vinegar, but that's, <laughs> that's some potent stuff. Um, I had thought about uh, trying to drink some of this up here uh, today and uh, decided... That would not go very well. I'm, I'm being encouraged by people right now, but that, that just, I don't think I could recover because it is so bitter. Now, uh, I found out some staff uh, actually do uh, take apple cider vinegar every single day. Um, they do it for some health benefits and all that. But when they do it, um, they actually dilute it in uh, warm water. Uh, and, and that's a pretty key point here because when Franny gave me her advice, while well-intentioned, She didn't mention the diluted part to it. And so we slugged back six to eight ounces of apple cider vinegar in the body. Now, um, that was some of the worst experience that I've had. But later on, we went in to get a CT scan and we found out that uh, either I never had kidney stones or the apple cider vinegar just totally blasted it out. They did find I had a hole in my stomach. I don't know where that came from. 
No, they, they didn't find that. But that was, that was an amazingly strange, awful experience that did help. But the reason I mention that is what would cause Jesus to, to have that kind of reaction to something? That bitter cup, you know, distress in the garden. What would cause him to have that kind of experience? We, we might be tempted at first to say that what the bitter cup of suffering is, is the physical torture that he was about to experience on the cross. Um, and as we've talked about in this set of conversations, a crucifixion was designed in such a way as to inflict the maximum amount of pain over the longest period of time uh, as possible on the person that is being crucified. However, throughout church history, there have been many people of faith, many martyrs who have had really horrific, gruesome deaths. And in the face of that, uh, those horrific deaths, they, you know, are recorded oftentimes of being people of relative calm. Uh, sometimes even a sense of joy that they were counted as being worthy to have suffered for the cause of Christ. And so I think there's something more that's going on here than just Jesus being uh, worried or feeling agony over the physical pain that he's about to experience. Though great that it is, and though horrific and gruesome that the cross is... We know that Jesus during his time was a man of great courage in the face of a lot of adversity and in the face of pain. And so what is the cup? Throughout scripture, particularly the Old Testament um, and also in parts of the New Testament, like uh, the, the cup is a symbol for God's wrath. Uh, in Psalm 75, uh, the, the psalmist writes about God pouring out his wrath as a, as a judgment of the wicked of the earth. In the book of Job, there is talk of a wicked person drinking in uh, the wrath of God's judgment, among other places. Now, wrath is a scary word. Uh, it's one that, depending on your background with church and experiences with God, can evoke some of that fire and brimstone imagery that that we're probably tired of from some of those experiences. So I'm going to ask if you that you would stick with me for just a moment as we kind of dive into what wrath is, because I think our experience of wrath, uh, the way that either we've you know, expressed our anger or the way that we have received anger is different than what we're talking about when we talk about God's wrath. For example, uh, we have, uh, my wife and I have a four-year-old. His name is Owen. Uh, he's also a verbal processor, which is great. He's in this age where he just lets you know what he's thinking. Uh, and he's experiencing how to learn about all of his emotions. And so it is not uncommon to hear four or five times a day in our house, I'm so mad mad, 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 you know, kind of scrunches up his face just like that. And you would race in there and you're thinking like some major crime has been committed only to find out that he just couldn't find like the right crayon color for his picture that he was trying to do. But it's like he just, you know, you have to admire his honesty because I think a lot of us probably throughout the day want to say mad, mad, mad. And we just learn to kind of stuff it down somewhere or, you know, figure out a different way to express it. But God, and this is important, and I think it's obvious, but we probably need to say it. God is not some immature four-year-old being. Uh, he's eternal. 
the Bible talks about him being holy, which means he is completely set apart. And so when it comes to just a, you know, flying off the handle at some random moment, a timeless God who is eternal, that's not how he acts. That's not who he is. He is not vindictive. Uh, he is not malicious. When we talk about his holiness, we say that he is perfect and that he has perfect justice and love, um, that he is holy and set apart. And so when we talk about his wrath, what we're talking about is his steady, uncompromising, unrelenting antagonism to evil. That's who he is. That in his nature, he is so holy that evil is just not able to be in his place. And I think deep down, we want him to be that way. Because as we try to make sense of our world and all the different things that are happening, I often find myself crying out for justice and trying to make sense of some of the atrocities that are happening in the world to know that there is a holy God who is present and is over all of it, who's perfect and holy in justice, is comforting to me. But God's holiness is a challenge and a problem to us as well, because we're not him, and we're not God. In fact, that's the kind of, if you want the short answer to the question we talked about, like, hey, why can't God just wave his hand and forgive and just be done with it? It's making a bad assumption that, that we are God, because we are not. You know, when someone sins against us, it's personal, and it hurts, and it's a problem. But when we sin against a holy God, it is to a whole other level. It's at a place where we are sinning against the very person who created the laws we're breaking. And so when you take that perfect nature of who he is, and our imperfection of who we are, there is a wide chasm between those two that the bible talks about it in the book of romans where there's no one like no matter what you've done or how good you've tried to be or how many great things you do or how just you are in your life or things you fight for that there's still no one that actually can ever measure up to the greatness and the holiness of god we all fall short and that when it comes to the idea of sin, that sin is not just acting naughty. It's not just a, you know, regrettable lapse of judgment or an oops. That sin is an active rebellion. It's a, it's a, it's a deep condition of the heart, as Jesus would talk about it, that is trying to place ourselves in the place of where God is, making ourselves the ruler, making ourselves the one who is in charge, putting ourselves and our selfishness kind of on full display. And the book of Romans also talks about, in that sense, in the case in front of a holy God, that the penalty for sin in the face of a holy God is death. So this is what makes the cross remarkable to us is that there is nothing that said that God had to make a way, but in his perfect love, he did. He said that I'm not going to just stay away. I'm going to engage in his perfect love and in his perfect justice came together at the cross. And the way that it did it is that God turned his wrath on himself. Theologian John Stott, uh, who wrote a great book, if you ever want to take a deep dive into this, it's called The Cross of Christ, uh, words it this way, and I think it's really uh, great. He said, in order to save us in such a way as to satisfy himself, God, through Christ, substituted himself 
for us. Divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. That's what was happening at the cross. Jesus taking on the full penalty of sin, the full wrath of God as our perfect substitute so that we could connect with him. And if the agony of, the, of expecting what was going to happen at the cross was so great for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, imagine what the reality must have felt like to bear all of the sins of the entire world of all time at one moment. God makes it clear that he didn't do this just because just he had to. He did this because he loves us. In fact, this is a great uh, reminder of this, that this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So that brings us to our famous last words today, where Jesus is up on the cross. He's not just agonizing over the expectation of it. He is actually up there. And John words it this way in chapter 19. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I highlighted it is finished, not just because it's our last words that we're looking at, but that actually these three English words are one word in Greek. That's the original language that uh, the New Testament uh, was written in. And this is actually a pretty rich word. It's tetelestai uh, in Greek, which is an interesting, uh, it's a very rich word. In fact, let me throw it up here, tetelestai. Uh, Tetelestai is in a different tense. Um, I feel like I have to get into a little bit of like grammar house rock or schoolhouse rock here for a second. But in English, there are three main tenses. There's past, present, and future. But in the Greek language, there are six tenses. Um, it's more nuanced, and, and it allows us to kind of get a richer meaning from each of them. And so tetelestai is in the perfect tense. If you want, again, I'm not going to stay in the grammar world for very long, so don't worry about it. But if you want an idea, it's the perfect tense is a combination of the past tense and the present tense. So basically, it's a way to say that there was something that happened in the past that has continuing results uh, today. For example, uh, if you paid off like a loan uh, or paid off a bill, uh, you could look at that bill and say tetelestai. Meaning it's finished and no one's going to come back later on and say, hey, you owe more or there's something more. It's like it's done. I use that example on purpose, actually, because um, I think there is a challenge that most of us have in thinking that anything is ever really finished. So, for example, when it comes to a bill, um, medical bills. (laughs) Has this ever happened to you where you get a bill in for a doctor's visit or a hospital visit or something that's going on? 
and uh, they send you the bill, and it's a lot of money, but you scrounge together all the stuff that you need, and, and you know, you write the check or the money order or whatever it is, and you send it in. You say, to tell us die, it's done, and then two months later, another bill for the same visit comes back in, and you're like, ah, mad, mad, mad. You know, it's just like, where is this coming from? I think within all of us, there's this constant feeling that nothing is ever really finished. Maybe it's our physical fitness in our life. Like It's like, man, I finished a workout, but I just know tomorrow I'm going to need to start again. Or maybe it's the email inbox. It's like, you know, like in Seinfeld, like the mail never stops. It's like it just keeps coming in. It's like no matter how you do it, it's like then just another one comes in. Perhaps it's expectations in your job or at school or at home or from whomever in your life that no matter how much you try to please that person, there's just another expectation that comes in. I I, I think we all live with this sense that it is hard for anything to ever be finished. It's why I think when we come to our relationship with God, there is a danger that we all face, myself included, of living with what I would call an 80% mentality. Kind of like my 80% clean. It's sort of like an 80% mentality with Jesus, where it's like, hey, Jesus, uh, where we kind of almost picture Jesus saying it this way, where he's like, hey, you know what? I did so much at the cross. Like, I suffered for you. I died for you. I rose from the dead for you. So, uh, you know, I got us pretty much there. Can you just do that last part? Like, all I need, I mean, man, can't you just, you know, actually, like, you know, pick up your boots and just make it work? Whether it's stopping like a bad habit that we, you know, feel like we fall into regularly, whether it's like church attendance or, you know, uh, anything in our life that we feel like that there's this extra 20% expectation that, that often falls on us. I think that's a really easy mentality to have. And when we have that mentality, whether we would say it or not, like maybe some of us do believe that, but there's probably a number of us that say, I don't really know if I believe that, but sometimes we live it that way. I think there are some indicators that pop up in our life when we have that 80% mentality. At least it is for me. Like guilt or stress. Even on the opposite side of this is self-righteousness or pride. Like, look what I did for you, God. Like, you should be proud. Shame, weariness, and anger. I think these are indicators that we have to maybe pay attention to in our heart to say, okay, am I really buying into finished is finished in my life? Or is this really kind of about me earning something is it really about me kind of saying look what i did or or making excuses or 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 trying to show off a bit that these indicators in our life might be some of those things that would say you know what do i really believe it's finished and i think what jesus would say to us today i know what he's saying to me is to tell us die it is finished not in a kind of sort of way Not in an 80% sort of way. Not in an inspirational, like, this is a great picture of a life. Now do your job and try to make it work. But in the perfect tense sort of way. If you don't believe me, there's some extra verses that I just think cement this. It's almost like the New Testament is trying to hammer this home in our life. Like in Romans, it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, And since we have now been justified by his blood, 
how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved through his life. Not only is this so, but we also boast in him through God, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Or put another way, in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Our sins are a big deal. They sent Jesus to the cross. Like, we shouldn't be casual about any of it. And yet, Jesus says we can have peace. We can be healed 100%. Uh, This is the main point of the message today. In fact, I'm going to ask you to humor me for a second, whatever room you're in. And in this room, if you humor me, can we just say this out loud together right now? 100%. Go for it. 100%. That's what he did for us. That he paid the penalty yesterday. He paid the penalty today. And the penalty will still be in power in the future. He paid for it 100%. Some of us, um, maybe we've never heard it this way before. Um, Maybe we didn't know that Hey, it is based on the work of Jesus. It's actually not based on anything that I'm doing or that you're doing to make our way to heaven, that none of us could make it there on our own, and that God's wrath is real and it's big, and that Jesus drank that cup of wrath for us, and he paid for it 100%. So maybe today is an opportunity for you to kind of say, you know what, I need to reject that 20% mentality that I got to work my way there or my 12% mentality or even a 2% mentality. And I got to put 100% of my trust in Jesus. Maybe for others of us and maybe all of us, if we've made that commitment in our life, but we're still wrestling with this like I am, it's a chance to say that if we're feeling any guilt today at a moment, that we remember 100%. That there is not one of us that earned our way there. And that when we have trusted in him and put 100% of our weight in him, we are adopted into his family as sons and daughters. That he doesn't just throw us out at one indiscretion. He's like, I paid the penalty for you 100%. And maybe for some of us, me included, where we get kind of a big head and we start to have some pride and say, you know what, I'm a better person than that person i'm a better christian than that person a better parent student whatever maybe today's a day to remind remind ourselves 100 percent that all of us are equal at the foot of the cross none of us were earning our way there and all of us needed a hundred percent of god's work at this and the last thing i would say is this that maybe all of us in this time of stress and anxiety where we're not feeling at peace, where we're feeling kind of just like there's so much swirling around, that maybe today is an opportunity to remember 100% that you can have peace with God. It doesn't mean that our sins won't have some consequences in some of our relationships or some of the things we've got to deal with, but the biggest issue, alienation, separation from the God who loves us, has been paid for 
100%. And that we can have peace with him. And that's really good news. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we recognize that you are holy. And we confess that sometimes we might be just a little too casual about that. That sometimes we might kind of just sort of talk about you without really recognizing just how big you are and how deep that chasm is between who we are and who you are and how big of a sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. And so we're grateful for him. We remember him tonight. We're grateful that he rose from the dead so that death was conquered. And Father, as we continue to worship in the next few songs, we want to worship out of a spirit of gratitude. That we don't deserve any of it, but that you paid for it 100%. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.